You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. All right, today is uh, Thursday, April 25th, 2019. Uh, my name is Peter Betke. I am the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at George Mason University's Mercatus Center, and I'm here with Professor Sandra Pert, the dean of the Jepson School of Leadership at the University of Richmond. Dean Pert is also the former president of History of Economic Society and the current president of the International Adam Smith Society. So thanks for coming on, Sandy. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So my first question actually is a, a big, uh, big question, which is you have this track record of outstanding scholarship and also a track record of outstanding academic leadership. And how do you do it? Let me just say it, it takes a lot of juggling. Um, I have a good co-author who's very forgiving when I get behind on deadlines and so on. Um, so that would be David Levy, your, your uh, colleague. But it really uh, takes, um, it takes putting aside things once in a while and then writing constantly in the evenings and on weekends. But, you know, we are so fortunate as professors that we can do that sort of work at any time and in any place, at least if you sort of got the ideas in your head or access to whatever you need, which is increasingly possible. So um, I do find that um, being a dean can be challenging. There are always meetings. Your calendar is not your own. Um, and you just have to you know, work on deadlines that are less fluid than the academic life. Um, but it's been a real joy because I've been able to hire great faculty and sort of rebuild a school that was um, in a place where a lot of retirements were going to happen, and that's been exciting. Uh, and uh, a, a number of them have recently uh, obtained tenure, and that was wonderful. Um, and one of the greatest joys I've had is that my faculty uh, a year ago, the endowed chairs, decided that they should recognize my continuing uh, work in scholar the scholarly realm. And they went to the provost and um, asked him to um, give me an endowed chair. And so that was cool. It was great you know, yeah. to have it come from your faculty. Uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I, um, I wanted to um, – I understand – um, so I've, one of the things that always amazed me with you is how joyous um, the process of scholarship is and how the joyous you've been in tackling, like, um, administrative aspects. I don't mean necessarily at the, the uh, at University of Richmond, but just in general. Um, it it's never seems like a burden. It always seems like a, a mission <laughs> of excitement. And I was just wanting to just push on this one last time about – kind of advice to maybe some young people who are interested in pursuing a, a kind of a broader notion of economics like yourself, um, but yet at the same time have tried to find themselves in the niches in universities where they exist and, yeah, yeah. and what advice you would give to a young person. So I think it's important to be ready to build something, you know, so if an opportunity comes along and you say, I you think to yourself, I can imagine how to do that. Um, talk to people about doing it and, you know, just start building it. Um, so I, I got into administrative work by accident, basically, because 
the former president at my former university announced a gift, um, his first major gift, to do something in leadership. And the faculty sort of mumbled, you know, what would you do in leadership? And I thought, I could do something with Adam Smith on leadership. So yeah. I talked to him, and, and, you know, it opened a lot of doors. Um, and I think you need to you need to not paint yourself into a corner and do something that you just repeatedly do day after day because it'll get stale. Um, so be ready to see a new way to do something and then build it. Yeah, the mentioning of Adam Smith may, may, makes me want to ask a question that I, d I didn't write down. But uh, I just was on a dissertation uh, yesterday. Uh, one of the papers, in fact, uh, was very much inspired by uh, a student who had your co-author in class and, and wanted to work on that. Good. And as I was reading the dissertation, I was impressed uh, twofold. One of them was is how uh, really fascinating this dissertation was and how almost impossible it is to try to sell it to a traditional economics audience. But there's something about Adam Smith which is very refreshing for anyone who cares about PPE, for example. And I just was wondering if you might talk a, a little bit about what is it so special about an Adam Smith that makes us want to keep reading him today and learning from him? Oh, wonderful question. So um, I'll just say I finished uh, teaching a class uh, that I call Competition, Cooperation, and Choice. And we start by, re well, we read Mandeville, but we read a lot of Smith after that. Um, and, you know, these are students who've never read anything in the history of economics, um, maybe a little Plato or, you know, whatever kind of philosophy text. Uh, but they just loved Adam Smith. And every time I teach students who haven't been, you know, chosen to take a history of economics course, I wonder, you know, will it work this time? Yeah. Um, and it does. It just constantly does. So you're right. Um, uh, so what is it that resonates? I mean, he's just brilliant. He's, you know, anyone who reads Smith can find something that will resonate. You know, will find a story uh, where they say, and students, you know, let's face it, they're often undergraduates. They're looking for things that, that speak to their own lives. Uh, and they'll read a story in Smith and they'll say, yeah, that's right. You know, and, and then they'll, they'll want to read some more. Um, and so... You know, uh, I think it's you're absolutely right that um, he does resonate constantly, uh, and it's because he's got all these insights, he, and he, right. he tells it in such a you know not in every chapter perhaps, but in in just such an engaging way. Um, yeah, he's he's an observer, yeah. um, uh, the best. Yeah, it's a, a um, beautifully written. Yes, and yeah. it tells you about the power of the of the of beautiful written. Yes, things. yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, because we deal with a lot of people who we might think have very deep insights, but they make it difficult for the, yes, the readers to, you know, to understand. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that in a yes, second. I can but think of I, I think of, you know, the, um, with Smith, it's, it's, uh, just the, the beautiful prose, right? It's the yeah. beautiful prose and the insights. Yeah. So it's, you know, there are people who write beautifully and, and they're not saying very much, but, right. but yeah, so, so, you know, the, the, the brilliance of the people who are more dense and harder to, harder to sort of go along with that you are yeah. going to come back to <laughs> soon but yeah. but told in such a way that um, you know anyone can understand it yeah yeah I, I um, yeah let me not jump ahead too far <laughs> okay. on that um, I wanted to um, you're here today because we're going to be talking about Hayek and whatnot but you also contributed the volume on mill uh, for in the Hayek collected works and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that project and 
um, how you approached it, what you learned in the process of doing it. Sure. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was, uh, I say in the introduction that it was a labor of love. It took far longer than I thought it was going to take, uh, but I enjoyed it so much. And, and, and I did start it just as I became a dean. Uh, or just before I became a dean. So it, there was a lot of putting it aside and then coming back to it uh, as I was learning this new job of being a dean. Um, and so then when I would come back to it, it would, I would say, oh, this is wonderful. Now I'm going back to you know <laughs> where I started, yeah. uh, being an academic. And, and so it was just really great fun for that reason. Um, it was a very complicated project. Um, uh, John Stuart Mill. Uh, all of 19th century um, sort of intellectual history packed into this book, um, and Hayek knew all of that, um, and that's how he, that's why he packed it into the book. So, you, so one had to not only know Hayek reasonably well, but also uh, the 19th century. Uh, and he, I hope that what comes through in that book is his erudition. I mean, he's just amazing, um, and we don't always think of Hayek as we, we do think of him as erudite, but not as a, an amazing historian of economics. Right. Uh, and, and so that, that's one thing that I learned that, um, I mean, it wasn't a surprise. I knew that I had read Hayek, um, but it was um, a surprise. I guess the surprise was just the number, the volume of sources that he used. Uh, and that was the challenge then for me, because they weren't, um, they weren't always known to me. Um, meant I had to track down a lot of, uh, most of it was published, uh, most of those things were published. Uh, I mean now secondary uh, sources and so on. Um, and then uh, there was the unpublished work as well. So um, the fortunate thing was that because of that book, um, the University of Toronto Collected Works emerged, uh, and so much of Mill's work was actually in published form mm -hmm. in the University of Toronto set of volumes. So that was great. Um, and really that, uh, like I say, that had a lot to do with Hayek collecting the letters that go into the Mill-Taylor volume. Yeah. So. It's, it's interesting about just as Hayek as a historian of thought um, because I, I think also that there's a um, – so when I, when I taught at NYU, Israel Kirzner used to like tell a funny story that he was in charge of teaching the core micro course – um, for the PhD students for when he first got hired right and he did that for the first five you know years or something like that yeah. and he said that he woke up one day and he was designated as a historian of thought <laughs> 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 by his colleagues because yes. you know the economics profession had transformed right and right. so the way he used to teach theory like if you go back and you read Viner's uh, syllabus from when he taught price theory to Milton Friedman right. Right. it's full of Marshall it's full of Bombavrick it's full of all these old thinkers yes. And that was the expectation. If you look at the in the back of the um, uh, uh, Gould and Ferguson old price theory text, they have the Princeton prelims, and they're the prelims written by Mockluff, and they have right. all the old questions about Bombavrick's horse market yes, and all yeah, things like yeah, that, yeah. which no one would ever ask today. And so <laughs> one of the things that struck me when I was in the, again at the LSE uh, archives is um, letters or whatnot that. Um, by famous people that all referred to Hayek as a master of history of economic right, thought. Right. But like later on, we would not look back at it because we he always taught, told the history of economic thought for a purpose. Right. And now we have a different meaning of what that yes. discipline is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I wonder whether or not even, you know, many modern practitioners would view Schumpeter as like right. a master historian of economic thought. But right. 
you know, Hayek does present particular difficulties because also his citation pattern yes. isn't always the most careful. So that was that was a challenge. Yes, yeah. just finding you know what what book is he referring to? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. they have it all up in their head. Right, yeah, right. It's part of their. Um, I do think a great project uh, can be written someday on what is considered common knowledge among the uh, the uh, economics profession at various different times. Oh, that'd be fabulous. And, and, uh, and I think it's hard to capture, um, mm -hmm. but it actually would be a wonderful thing. Like, what do we consider all PhDs to know? Right, you know, right, kind of thing. in any given decade. Or, yeah, because it changes. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, and, and you can study that. Yeah. Um, anyway, Mill also um, uh, is a project that you've worked on separately from the relationship right. to Hayek. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so, I, and I've just recently returned to Mill. Um, thinking about a project that I'm going to do in the summer, but uh, in Reread on Liberty, which is just one of the most wonderful works that I, uh, that anyone can read, and, and another one that resonates with students um, still. Um, yeah, so John Surimil is so important because he's kind of the turning point after which um, uh, economics moves into, um, gradually at least, uh, kind of racialized or a very different way of, of uh, looking at economic actors. I think Mill is much more in line, well, obviously with Smith and also with uh, someone who's important later in the 20th century, Knight. Mm -hmm. um, and really um, uh, what, I, what I've recently come to think about is his work on discussion and on, um, on uh, speech is so much more important than I think today um, than perhaps people realize. And I, now I have in mind, you know, what's going on in college campuses right. and, and um, uh, the difficulties that we're facing in terms of trying to have people talk civilly to each other. Uh, and and what, what I realized when I read Mill just a few months ago, read him again, is that his notion of of speech is really sort of a trial and error process where people um, come to interact with each other and discover things, uh, and it's uh, it's so it's it's much um, as I say in line with night people talking as equals and exchanging, uh, and and so it's it's not just sort of speech out there in isolation um, and. The way people sometimes just kind of talk about speech like it's just a thing. It's it's a process. It's an interaction. Uh, and it's a form of discovery. And it's a deeper form of discovery than reading uh, mm -hmm. or learning, you know, in a classroom setting. And he says that in On Liberty. Uh, so it's really fascinating. Yeah, the and, and then the what the rules are that allow yeah, that yeah, to Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, we, we have a program here called our Adam Smith Fellows, and we work with Ph.D. students in the social sciences, humanities that are not at George Mason, and we run um, a series of colloquium, and they come and they read, you know, like basically um, like our standard Socratic kind yep, of seminars, yeah. things that sure. we, that Liberty Fund or whatever does. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the summer they come, so in their year they read the uh, you know classics by Mises and Hayek, and then they read the classics by Buchanan and Tulloch, and then they read the classics by the Ostroms. And then the summer they read Adam Smith and uh, David Hume and uh, John Stuart Mill um, and, um, and Tocqueville. And um, last summer we introduced these new readings from Mill. And I was blown away by how relevant they are yes. for today because we read his essays having to do with race, 
gender and inequality. Yes. yes. And what he speaks to today makes more sense in many ways than right. people that have been spending all that time since that yeah. time. Yeah. And it and so he's another one who's a beautiful writer and right. full of insight like like uh like Smith. So you've been fortunate in picking two, yes. two yeah. people. Yeah, well, he's just he's a joy to read and you're right to, you know, to pick up on the equality and the gender issues uh and I mean, The Subjection of Women is an amazing book. Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah and yeah. it's... Uh, and he was so much better than William Stanley Jevons, you know, on whom I wrote uh, my dissertation with res- sort of in comparison to Mill. Um, you know, Jevons is all worried about women working in factories, how they're, they're going to be talked into poor marriages and have too many kids. And, right. you know, and, and infant mortality rates were, were really high, but... Mill doesn't see this as a problem. He says, look, if women can own property outside of marriage and, and enter the labor force, they'll decide to have fewer children. End of story. They'll make good choices in marriage. If they don't, they'll leave the marriage. You right. know, it's, it's not so difficult. Um, so, yeah, he's just he's really, really strong. And that goes back to your point about natural equals. Yes. Because he's, he yes. trusts everyone to actually be have their own volition. Exactly. They, they have those capabilities, right? Right, yeah. right. So. And, you know, they're fallible. They'll make mistakes, right. but they're not going to make s- mistakes systematically. And, and if they do make mistakes, they're the best ones to correct them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's awesome. So yeah. we've, we've talked about Smith and Mill, beautiful writers that have deep insights, get us to discussion and dealing with natural equals. Now we turn to the 20th century <laughs> and people trying to capture this. Um, I should tell uh, you that I just was um, – so, David, uh, your co-author has been telling me for years about this flatland thing. Yes. And I haven't – I just didn't understand completely what he was doing. And then one uh, separately, I have been very struck by how Buchanan, Jim Buchanan, my teacher and, and someone you've worked very closely with, both personally and on his works, um, how uh, the burden that he puts on his reader to understand all the constituent parts right. that make up his argument, and uh, and therefore they might get misled on this. And so then all of a sudden I was reading one time, I was like, man, Buchanan makes this, and I was like, oh, my God, that's David's point <laughs> you know, about the flatland thing. You know, they don't right. get that third dimension. Right, they, right, they're, right, they're completely right. missing it, so they distort the whole thing. And that is one of the issues that there's – so there's two questions I want to ask. One of them is about the, you know, Knight, uh, Buchanan, natural equals economics kind of yes. thing. But then also what happened in the period of time from Mill to Knight that this became – a flatland like you know what what had happened to our intellectual discourse that the kind of insights that someone like mill has or that you know that what you talk about uh even with smith with the vanity of the philosopher's right, book right. you know and and what had happened in your mind that oh, caused this issue that's a tough question so you know maybe it's it's specialization um but but i don't you know so i was taught in in the tradition of uh, general equilibrium economics, uh, optimization problems, and so on. And I, I didn't realize what an important um, turn that was in economic theory. You know, I, I also studied the history of economics, so I, I read my Smith and I read my Mill uh, and so on, uh, and then I did my theory classes. Um, and I knew that the two were different, um, but I didn't. I don't think I realized how they differed, or, or at least some of the significant ways that they differed. 
you know, of course, one's math and one's words, and so you know, there's a difference. Uh, <laughs> but 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 um, the the important thing that I think David and I have kind of latched onto is this missing dimension: is that you know, when the questions were simplified into um, stripping out institutions um, and making a formal optimization problem, um, that really changed the nature of how, e of how the theorist was looking at economic interactions. Um, so it meant that the theorist was someone outside the problem, writing down the problem, solving the problem, uh, and then and positing, uh, positing you know, rational economic actors who get to equilibrium. Uh, and then if they don't get to equilibrium, um, suggesting that there's some mistake, right, some irrationality uh, that needs to be fixed. Uh, and, and so that, I, I do think that that, you know, we've, we've all known that that happened, but I don't think we've yet fully appreciated yeah. what it means. And that's why I think your book is important, yeah. um, that we'll talk about this afternoon. I mean, just this, and, and Buchanan was trying to get people to think about how, um, how you can the econo you could look at the the economic problem as people interacting, trying to discover um, uh, the best ways to live together, um, but it, that project was sidelined. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to jump ahead a little bit, um, I hope that this doesn't send us wrong. But one of the things that I was struck in your most recent book with David on the Virginia School is the letter between Buchanan and Olson on uh, basically fixed preferences. Yes. Um, because it's such a fascinating distinction because Buchanan's point is such a very subtle point that he's not doing the Stigler-Becker move. Right. But yet he's also not doing preference-based economics and yeah. trying to communicate that to Olson. And whether or not Olson can see that is up for grabs because right. we don't have the second letter back, right? About right. so, right. but it's an interesting thing that Buchanan's doing, and I I just reread and actually, <laughs> this is a kind of a strange exercise, but because of reading your book, I went back and I read Knight's uh, presidential address to the American Economic Association, and I was so struck by it that I then went and read it to my class oh, on, on Tuesday night, uh, which I'm sure they must have thought, like, what the <laughs> hell is this guy doing? And I was, you know, I, I didn't do voices or anything. I just, <laughs> you know, sort of tried to pick out the highlights of the thing right. about that. But what he's saying to them, I'm just trying to envision, you know, in this audience is a people who have already flattened economics. Right. Because remember, he doesn't become president, he doesn't allow himself to be voted president earlier because he turns it down because he doesn't want to do administration. Right, so he's right, at right. the back end of his career. Yeah. So it's 1950. This means Samuelsonian economics has already got a grab. Right. Um, you already have this beginning of the striving to have an institutional-less economics. Yes. Yep. And here comes this guy along, and he's talking about democracy and whether or not you know this is like a democratic way right, of right, an right. analyzing yeah. it. Um, and yet at the same time, he's admitting that, you know, the people that are inside the democracy can sometimes, like, reject and therefore maybe our whole enterprise is worthless. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's so Buchanan-esque in terms of this, like, weird mix of pessimism <laughs> and these deep insights. And I just wonder what they would have thought. Yes. Like, so I, I, I think there was a weird mix of pessimism and insights. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, 
and I, I, I don't know if you ever feel that way, but I sometimes feel it myself. I mean, I think you're a pretty positive person, and, and most of the time I am too. But, but I mean, just in terms of trying to get the, get trying to have people understand what it is we're trying to do, yeah. um, and and uh, you know, one of the things about the Virginia School Book is we're trying to trying to give enough of the evidence, the letters right. and the documents and so on, so that people can people can form their own conclusions, um, but also, you know, remove be dispassionate about it, about about the situation so that that um, we're not we're not seen as kind of ideologically presenting mm -hmm. this case. Um, and and you know, the whole case about ideology, you know, they've been identified with having a certain ideological bent. And, and what we're trying to say in, in the book, or show in the book, um, is that there's a methodological point, you know, that, and that's what, what deeply characterized them. Uh, and it's the flat yeah. land point. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, if you read those letters, you, you, these are letters that they didn't expect to be published, right? These are these are their own thoughts about what they were on about, uh, and uh, I mean they're wonderful for one thing, just yeah. to you know sort of see the story unfold. But but even the very early ones, so the one you're talking about is a little bit later, but you know in '59 yeah. and '60, and and uh, um, so when Nutter writes to Coase and he says, you know, w if we tried to do what everyone else is doing, we'd just be you know third rate. But actually, that's not relevant. We don't want to do that. We want to do a different kind of economics. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, you know, Buch uh, Buchanan trying to explain to the Ford Foundation what they were on about, uh, and the Ford Foundation didn't get it. Right. You, know, you can tell. I mean, it's it's, and and there are people who are never going to get that story. I think, but mm. to the extent that you that people read the letters, I think they'll come to understand better what they were on about. Yeah, I think that. So I mean, I I I I, I want to get to the long line of work that you've sure. been doing on natural equals because sure. this is um yeah, i think huge. extremely important part yeah. of what yes. actually goes in that but yes. before that I, I so it is intriguing because um in dick wagner's presentation of buchanan's project which is in some sense caught up in the spirit of the tjc and what they were trying to do in terms right. of the liberal political economy project but by that liberal political economy project they don't mean what people read as like some version of libertarianism or something right um they there's really no there, there is a normative bent obviously but that's not the point the point is this methodological idea about how it is that you structure the democratic discourse right so the ostroms in their work they actually go as far because they're very much influenced i think by the same tradition mm -hmm. to be honest yeah. and um and they and vincent says at one point he says um the point is to have a social science that's worthy, right, of serving a self-governing democratic society. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. like, who would ever think of that as a social... Like, that's not something that other people think about, that you have right. a social science that's constrained by this project of self-governing democratic society. Right. Right. But if you believe that you're having a, a political economy that has to fit into a world of equals, that we're one another's equals, and that that's what we're trying to do... And so that brings in a whole new light about Buchanan's point about from the 49 paper about that you can't do public finance unless you postulate a theory of the right, state. Right, and right, right. and yeah. again, it's not it's not normative in the same way that 
you know, other peoples might have had the project of, but it, I mean, it's definitely normative in some way, but it's not, it's not ideological. Let right. me put it that way. Right. Yeah. Yes. And he writes, uh, there's one letter in which he writes that um, uh, Knight's project presumed uh, a moral development in which people had the, had the ability to imagine themselves yeah. as someone else. And I think that's really important because that's part of the whole natural equals thing. Right. You know, we all have that facility. Uh, and to my point about you know pessimism, optimism, you know sometimes I wonder if today we've you know s in significant ways we've kind of lost that ability. Um, but that may take you too far aside. But no. it, it, it just it does make me think. Well, as a university leader, you have to worry about those kind of questions. No kidding. And especially kidding. what we're doing with young people's in terms of creating the environment for them to actually be able to engage in that kind of right, discourse. Right. And um, it's a very Smithian point. Yeah. Know, so it's interesting that he attributes it to Mill, to, sorry, to Knight, um, because I think of Knight more kind of in line with Mill. But, I, I mean, I think it's Mill, Smith, and Knight, yeah. uh, and Buchanan, all on this natural equals business. So let me get to that yeah, then. Yeah, sure. And, and let's talk about that, because it's been an, an impressive uh, you know, array of, uh, of works because you have the Vanity of the Philosophers Project, you have the Escape from Democracy Project, right. and now you have the Virginia School Project. So it's been a sustained series yeah. of work yeah. on this political economy of natural equals. And so I, for the, for the listeners out there, just if you could explain what natural equals are, what the, these kind of questions raise, and, um, you know, maybe... Well, let's just start with there, and then okay. I'll ask you the question about Buchanan's criticism of his okay. people that he's fighting. So, so I'll, I'll start with uh, the Smithian point, um, where uh, Smith argues that um, we're essentially the same when we come into the world, uh, and then it's uh, what, what we call incentives, luck, and history, that the division of labor, which causes us to be different uh, as we go into the labor market and so on. So... So the point is, you know, we're basically equally capable of making choices, of speech, of reason, of imaginative um, thinking, uh, and you know, we do end up being different. Uh, and and uh, as David and I have devel developed this, we call it analytical egalitarianism. So for the purposes of analyzing economic choices, political choices, we need to presume that people are roughly equivalent. Obviously, we're a little bit different um, uh, physically, uh, but those things don't particularly matter in the political or economic realm. You know, putting aside whether you are equipped to pay, play, you know, basketball or something, right. which I'm as a five-one person not equipped to do. Um, but but uh, at, uh, so so that's the basic point. Um, and in the in the 19th century, uh, economists through John Stuart Mill. I would argue accept that point um, uh, and fall in that tradition. And then it's attacked. The, the position is attacked late in the 19th century, mid to late 19th century, by a number of biologists, anthropologists, sociologists, economists, political economists, who come to argue that different groups are, um, uh, that groups are different, uh, and then put a sign on the difference. Mm -hmm. So you know, some people are inferior, um, and um, in economics, this plays out 
uh, late in the 19th and early in the 20th century uh, in the uh, case that people make for um, laboring classes being particularly myopic and not saving enough um, and um, having high rates of time preference right. and so on, um, making stupid marriages <laughs> uh, and so on. Um, and then David and I have argued, you know, kind of mid-20th century analytical egalitarianism comes back into economic theory thinking, uh, in part thanks to Buchanan, but uh, also uh, the Austrian school mm -hmm. uh, and Lionel Robbins at the LSE. So there's a reason, you know, you go to the LSE um, yeah. because there's there are intellectual con connections, and I think the key connection is around uh, analytical egalitarianism, uh, a yeah, way of looking at economic actors. Yeah, the uh, it's interesting uh, related to that. Again, it fits with your um, story and um, your your sustained work with David over these years has alerted people to seeing these clues, which otherwise, right. because of the flatland, we wouldn't see. Right. So when I was uh, doing some work on Robbins, who I've fallen in love with uh, Robbins recently. Robbins is wonderful. Um, if you read his work in the 1930s and you read the work that Mises is involved in and Hayek yes. that are connected with him, they're all against the odious racial doctrines. Yes. And that's what they call them. Right. Like, we're going to fight the odious racial doctrines because right. they see it left and right, by the way, right, they see it across right. the spectrum, yes. that we have to fight this. And then all of a sudden, it makes sense that they would be on the opposite side of the eugenicists and exactly. all this. But one of the things that's fascinating in the conversation, I, again, I don't want to run too quickly ahead, but but um, is that you, you and David are flipping the argument in many ways on a lot of the critics yes. of, of, of the argument uh, from a Buchanan or someone like that, because you're arguing this is democracy like these are the defenders of democracy right, right. as opposed to the non-defenders exactly of, so the natural hierarchies the natural elites and so it's in the most recent book uh one of the things that's very important i think for you to lay out is that there was also this anti-democratic yes. uh, movement on that's associated in the same space as buchanan and whatnot but right. they're not they're, they're like far apart they're yeah. terrible they're nasty uh and 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 there, that's another flatland problem because they're sometimes seen as equivalent to yeah. the analytical egalitarians. Uh, and and to your point about flipping things around, um, you know, abstract economic people have been that that notion has been criticized, uh, and it certainly isn't. You know, it's it's not a realistic way to describe economic actors. But if by if by adding in things. You know, by adding realism, you add in attributes that mean that, you know, poor people are are not good at making choices. Right. You know, then you're 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 you as the theorist are just kind of imposing some sort of, you know, view uh, that isn't warranted. Uh, yeah. So, so you know, I used to, like a lot of graduate students, think abstract economic man. What's that? You know, but now I appreciate why it's so important, because it it removes everything that's important and says, you know, everyth it removes everything that's sort of extraneous to being able to choose. And it says, okay, you know, once you do that, we're equal. Um, yeah, I like, I, I don't know how, how successful this distinction is, but um, I think that when we have very thin notions of rationality, what that requires for our explanations to go through is much thicker notions yes. of institutions, sure. which is the emphasis on rules. Mm -hmm. And when we have 
imbue the rationality hypothesis and everything with such really thick notions, fill out the utility function right, and right, give right. great cognitive capacities, we end up by having uh, very thin notions of institutions. Yes. And it, what I think what happened in that period that we were talking about is that because of mathematical tractability, we started to put more and more things into the cognitive capacities of the choosers, therefore eliminating the institutions and then point it to the failure of the world to conform to that very thick notion of rationality That's and then exactly said, see, right. now we don't have anything, so right. we need to step in. Right. And so I'm actually going to be, I'm writing a piece right now on Alchin and oh, why sure. it is that Alchin wrote the uncertainty evolution, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, paper because he has very, he actually wants to say that the institutions do the weeding out. So the institutions are what's smart oh, interesting. rather yeah, yeah, than yeah. the individuals being yeah. that smart. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, anyway, I don't know if it will work, but that's like what I'm thinking about trying to do. And I was alerted again to this, to the sort of ideas, even going back to how the dismal science got its name and the right. idea of the analytical egalitarianism um, as being the anti-identity uh, aspects of that right. and right. Uh, how important that is for our understanding of the way we interact with one another. Right, right. And uh, since you mentioned the expert book, I'll just say, you know, that in that book, we take that insight um, and really try to apply it to policy advisors to experts where yeah. I think uh, you know Buchanan was wonderful in that he he um, expanded our thinking about analytical egalitarianism but it's it hadn't in, at least in my view I don't think it's really we've we've fully understood that um, you know we who are writing down these models are also one of the modeled yeah. uh, and we need to be careful about that and think about the implications of that. Yeah. So that's what we're trying to do in the expert book. Well, I think you guys do a brilliant juxta juxtaposition in that sense of evol of the evolution of the, the sort of marriage between Buchanan and Tulloch yes. in that regard. Because the way I like to think about Buchanan is his advice to us is that economists are not in any privileged position. Yep. That's the 59 yep. paper, yep. right? Sure. None of us are in a privileged exactly. position over anyone else. Yep. We're all natural equals. So yep. all we can do is offer our advice yep. as – um, uh, hypotheses to be yes. tested, right? Yes. And then he warns that we can't take the utilitarian, yeah. the, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, sort of engineer or the elitist mentality. Yeah. Um, so that's it. Yeah. But then you come up, but he's a truth seeker, right? Yes. That's the yeah. economist yeah. is the truth yeah. seeker. Yeah. Um, and, and that's important in him in another sense, which is in the contrast between science and politics because you can't mm -hmm. have truth in politics because that's the route to tyranny right right but he has yeah. to have science and then you have Tulloch come along and he <laughs> says you know what science is a racket <laughs> yes that w yeah. we are in the model right, right? right and right. so yeah. that's a kind of a fascinating thing and the question then is is that that going back to the early one I think what that does is then puts even more emphasis on that we have to have rules about yeah. truth seeking. Exactly. Yeah, that's which exactly you talk right. about as mm -hmm. well in the Escaping mm -hmm. from Democracy yeah. book. Yeah. yeah. Um, because a large part of the engineering mentality is to move away sure. from having any checks yep. on the expert yeah. to be able to do things. Yeah. All right, that's great. I would like to turn. I mean, I think again, like these projects that you're doing are uh, fundamental for our uh, for the knowledge of the past, but also from where we go in the future. Yeah. And so in the Virginia School of Political Economy book, you end with the idea, is it time, is there a future for a, right. a political economy of, of natural equals? And right, yeah. Right. So great question. And, and 
you know, when you said, well, Jim had these sort of two sides, um, thinking about the role of experts. Um, uh, you know, you want you want to win if you're writing these things, and and so, you know, yes, there's got to be a, a way to redevelop this. You know, on the other hand, you know, we're in this sort of situation where we're surrounded by other people who are putting ideas forward and so yeah. on. So, you know, you just you got to do your best, put your ideas out there. Um, uh, be optimistic that people will read things. Not everybody's going to read things um, uh, with an open mind. Uh, and so you just, you know, hope that you can convince people who do have an open mind or who are going to come to the text with a sort of, you know, fresh new set of eyes. Um, and it does seem to me that there, there are some sort of positive things that are, uh, that are going on. I mean, pol the political world <laughs> seems pretty... Uh, depressing, but but um, the world of ideas, you know, it does seem that the, um, the economic crisis, the last decade, has been kind of a fertile, created a fertile ground for people to take a new look at things. Um, what's going on in college campuses uh, in in terms of kind of disciplinary um, offerings and so on? I think opens up a lot of new possibilities for people who say are students from George Mason or whatever or or you know historians of economics you can teach in lots of different places uh, you don't have to teach in an economics department uh, and so I think there's there are plenty of opportunities out there for people who want to um, you know create new programs and and uh, new research programs yeah I, I don't know I if was that's having I was having dinner once with Pete Leeson and Andre mm -hmm. Slifer and and um, Andre's comment to me was that, um, you know, none of the students that he has at Harvard would take a job at a school beyond a certain point because right. they go into the right. private sector. Yeah. And then he looked at me, he says, because I was looking over all the placements of your students, he says, seems like you've cornered the market on all the schools <laughs> below that. <laughs> and he says, that's pretty good. He goes, got to have economics teachers somewhere, you know, and they ain't going to come from my students. So I was like, yeah, as long as they don't, that's okay. But I do think that there's a, like Vlad Tarko is sure. going to move this year from Dickinson, really high quality liberal arts yes. college, out to the University of Arizona where they're starting this new department oh, sure. of moral sciences. Mm -hmm. And I think there's the rise of these PPE programs mm -hmm. and things like that. And so mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of very exciting opportunities. It doesn't mean it's not difficult, yes. you know, to try to, uh, to do it. Or is it easy to do research in philosophy, politics and economics right. or history of economic thought? Um, it's hard. Yeah. You know, you especially to, to do it really so well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, th and so I wanted to turn to that because about methodology, okay. discipline and stuff, but, yeah. I, but, um, and promotional efforts and your, okay. and your own career in doing that. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about was there is, um, a premium in the history of economic thought field, uh, for the last decade or more to be a historian more than an economic analysis. So it's history of economics rather than history of economic analysis. But, um, and that means a, a, a demand for archival research, and there's been a lot right. of people doing archival research. Right. But one of the things that you and David do is you make your archives replicable, which yeah. almost no one else does, right? <laughs> yes. They, they, yeah. they, um, they make it, they, you have to take it on faith that what they're doing is, is that... And as we know, we have a huge replication crisis when we're dealing with uh, right. supposedly cleaner data 
right, of right. statistical analysis, let alone now in the dirty data of archives and whatnot. Right. And so can you talk a little bit about the justification in your minds about why you did this hard yeah. work of making it so replicable? So uh, I think that goes to David being a statistician. You know, it, it, uh, it just sort of made sense. It seemed obvious uh, on his part. Uh, and then on my part, um, I have spent a lot of time reading secondary sources that have done a not a very good job treating the primary sources, and so it seems to me that you know the way you the way you avoid that um, going forward is you make sure that, as you say, people can actually read the the works um, that you're dealing with. It does, you know, now that now that things are available online, um, yeah. you know, there that the the volume uh, problem. Uh, has become much less of an issue, um, but you know, in our in our Virginia School book, in the paper copy, there will be a lot of documentation, yeah. a lot of documents, as as I've mentioned. Um, it means you have to pick and choose, so you know, not everything is there. Right. Um, so there's 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 still sort of a replication problem, but but um, uh, I just think it's really important, uh, especially if there are competing views of you know what someone's been trying to do yeah, yeah. to make sure that people can actually read what the words were. Um, now you you do risk in some pro some archival work. You know I think you 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 risk. I don't think this is this is true yet, at least for the Virginia School. But you risk the 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 that you might just go too far into you know trivia and mm -hmm. detail and so on. So you want to make sure you've got a good story and that you're you're not. Um, know just throwing thousands of words at people um but we know some books like yes that. <laughs> yes indeed, indeed. Uh, but like i said i don't think we're you know there's just so much that hasn't really been done on the virginia yeah. school um so so there's still a lot of room for work yeah. there i um so I mentioned Robbins before, yes. and Sue Housen's book is a magisterial treatment. I, I don't right. want to, but, you know, she also has a point of view, and she right. has her own flatland problem because she actually doesn't see other things, and, and uh, you know, that, that one would see if they come at it differently. Right. And also doing the counterfactuals are kind of fascinating there because part of what happens after the war is a consequence of personal relationships that get torn asunder because of behavior. Right. I, I will tell you that when I was at the LSE just recently, I was just there two months ago, and I was in the archives, and I came upon the divorce file, Hayek's oh, divorce file, oh, with Ro but in Robbins's papers, right. not in Hayek's. Oh, gosh. And there's not a moment in that file where Hayek appears to be a good person. <laughs> oh, it's just he's, he's oh, terrible on yeah. all the different levels. And it's uh, now another fact is that during the war to escape the bombing Hayek's wife and children live with Robbins's wife and their oh, kids in their country home yeah oh gosh so they were like yeah. two peas mm -hmm. in a pod mm -hmm. and anyone who's ever been married knows that if you have two friends and the spouses oh, are two peas in a pod and then right. one of them leaves that it's life isn't going to be so good right, right? right. and then yeah. and, but what Hayek did that was worse was he dumped all of the negotiations remember he goes to the United States right. and, and that's a whole other story yeah. but he dumps it all on Robbins to take care yeah. of it all yeah. and then he's like a jerk about it and then robbins is like so their friendship like you can watch right. it, it's like going down the toilet like right. during right. this letters and i'm reading it and i'm reading it, i'm like i'm supposed to be reading about dickinson and like planning why am i reading this divorce <laughs> yes. files yes. but it was a, a, an amazing thing but you think about like okay so 
when Robbins chooses to emphasize ideas later, you know, it's not like he's going to be like reemphasizing those things or interacting right. and right. doing all of that. Yeah. And here's an interesting factoid. Robbins is who wrote the original statement of purpose for the Mont Pelerin Society. Right, right, right. Yes, and, and, yeah, and then he yeah. doesn't go to another yes, meeting, yeah. right? <laughs> and you ever wonder, like, why did that happen, right, you know? Yeah. And so it's a kind of fascinating uh, thing. Yeah, and especially yeah. if you if you look for the clues in the autobiography where he actually says he doesn't give up on the ideas that he was working in right. the 30s. Right, right. Yeah. Like if yeah, you read yeah, the autobiography, yeah, yes, he actually yeah, says he, says he doesn't give up those ideas, even the business mm -hmm. cycle. Mm -hmm. He says in the business cycle, he doesn't say that it was logically wrong. He says it was inapplicable for that period, right. but it's logically yeah. sound. Interesting. And with Mises' yeah. socialism, he says it's the, the most important contribution, right? But he says the problem is Mises is a bad, um, you know, marketer right. for his own insight, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of thing, yeah. which is yeah. a totally different argument than, oh, I think Mises is wrong about yeah. this or yeah. something. Yeah, so, you can learn a lot from reading correspondence. It's amazing. Yeah. And these personal relationships mm -hmm. matter a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, again, I'm always struck by a line from your co-author who says that, um, you know, when, when economists abandon their history, they leave it to the kindness of their enemies, right, right, right. you know, to yeah. tell the story. Yeah. And that's what's yeah. happened in the history of capitalism, the history of neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. And I hope people read carefully in your Virginia school book because you actually identify um, a series of characters who do fit the description that the right. critics have, right. but they're the, they've been they've been hitting the wrong target. Right. They're going after the wrong people. Yeah, and we look at the funding sources for yeah. those people, and and they're they're quite different than the funding sources for the Virginia School yeah. um, economists, and and we you know there was sort of a question whether we should include anything on them in the book because they're not the Virginia School, um, but uh, in the end we decided it was really important to include them because we. We needed to show people who the Virginia School wasn't. Yeah. Right? And who, those but nasty the, who they folks. think they are. Right. Right. And exactly. And that's the problem. Yeah. And yeah. and show that they they both intellectually they're different, yeah. and you know because funding sources have been you know mentioned um, it, by people who are not friendly to the Virginia School, you know look at the funding sources that they yeah. used and. But I think even it's more fundamental at the time because the narrative that oh, sure. currently is going on is also the narrative in the back of Kermit Gordon's head, right? And so this right. is who he thinks. Yes. And yeah. it's kind of like earlier work that you did. So young Walter Lippmann is sitting in a class and he has Thomas Nixon Carver as his right. professor. Yeah. And Thomas Nixon Carver, if you go back, is the leading representative of laissez-faire ideas right. in America at Harvard. And he's a eugenicist. Right. And, you know, so Lippmann sits there and sees. So when he hears anyone later on, you know, he, he Lippmann's more complicated. But at, at least for a period of time, when he hears anyone talking about laissez-faire ideas, he's like, oh, it's that guy. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So the, the notion that because, because um, the Virginia school is for small government in many cases, not right. always, and Carver's for small government or less they must fair. Be the same. They have to be the same. Well, yeah. no, not not at all. Right. Uh, and these other people, Carver and so on, you know, do unite around that laissez-faire. I mean, that's that's right. what they're on about. But the Virginia school is not. You know, they don't say we're about laissez-faire. They say right. we're about looking at how individuals come together in society and settle on, or not settle on, but agree upon uh, institutional arrangements. Um, 
that yeah. help them live their lives successfully. Yeah, that, that, that last point that you just made, this is in Knight's presidential address right. to the AEAs. He says the idea of free association yeah. and freedom yeah. is, is basically it's a corollary of natural equals. Right. And yeah, so exactly. then you enter the collective action problem as one another's equals, right. not with anyone telling you how to do it but right. he doesn't tell you what the outcome of that collective action yeah. is going to be yeah in fact yeah. he's kind of pessimistic about it <laughs> oh right that's nice yeah. <laughs> yeah. um so um all right so we've covered the 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 political economy and and this methodology issue of the replication of the right. archives right um, one of the things i wanted to ask you is because again over this period of your research you've actually seen and you've worked intimately with the buchanan papers and whatnot you've seen the evolution from you know, when Betty and Joanne right. oh, are running things to now the professionalization of the papers right. and the and whatnot. If you could just say something very brief about oh, that oh, evolution. Sure. So I spent a year working in the Buchanan House, um, uh, and not just in the papers, but you know, enjoying being there with Betty uh, uh, and Joanne. Uh, and and yeah, it, I think it was it it's really too bad that it took so long yeah. and this isn't a criticism of anyone or or and any um you know s anything except to say that uh those papers were there it was good that they were that that they were open um but they you know people could could have selective conversations with joanne and joanne um i think did have some of those conversations uh <laughs> and and uh there just wasn't um, a way to make sure that they uh, that that they would be used in a Correctly. professional right. manner, um, and and that's too bad. Um, you know, fast forward to now, it's great. You know, yeah. it's just terrific. Um, it's 190 oh, yeah, linear it's fabulous. feet, and yeah. it's processed. I think one of the biggest issues. There's obviously going back to the discussion of Tulloch. We are people in the model. Yes. And so, but we don't have to elaborate on that about stuff. But what, what I do think is a practical thing is that while Jim was alive, the Buchanan House was always viewed as a working right. office. Yes. And that's and what in I order did. to archive it, yep. you would have had to shut it down. So yes. when we did finally do the archiving project, which of course took time for Jim's estate to right. be right. Uh, settled and everything like that, when uh, January in 2014, that entire place was shut down for work. Right. And right. no one, you know, it was because everything was closed off. It yeah. was like a hazmat, right, right, you know, right. yeah. place. Yeah. And, you know, and, the, and then the processing of the paper right. started taking yeah. place. And, and that didn't get done until, uh, you know, 2017. So that's three years. Right. Could you ever imagine Jim Buchanan not oh, being able to work yeah. for, you know, three yeah. years? It just wouldn't have made sense. And it was so, a wonderful working office. Yeah. You know, so as I say, I, I had a room there and, and it was it was just terrific. The, the odd thing is that it was also An you know, a place where a lot of things were collected. It was more like a memorabilia yeah. place yeah. at that yeah. time, I think. And but and the way I, I like to, yes. to say it, because, you know, yourself worked there, Alain Marciano, Steve yes. Metema, sure. you know, so Sonia Amade, a lot of different yeah. people. But you found what it is that, like, someone knew how to find. So here's one of the interesting right. things is that Betty's papers were never actually accessed because they were in her office until yeah. – just when they started archiving, it was the last thing that they did because then right. they just opened up the office and they're like, yeah. oh, what's this? Oh, my and then gosh. It's, and think about that. That's Betty Tillman. Yes. She's like yes. the, the, the go-between for the entire career. Right. So then right. that changes the dynamics because you get like that flip side of correspondence sure. and everything. Mm -hmm. And so I agree with you that now is the time that 
uh, people can really process it professionally and yeah. work at it like a real scholar right. would need to work at right. it. Right. Yeah. 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 So it's a real treasure trove now. I will say there are a lot of archives that are that have similar problems. Yes. You know, that are just bo cardboard boxes filled with. So I've worked at the Jevons archives, and you know, his there'll be just you know things pages torn out of manuscripts because someone walked away with yeah. whatever they thought was important. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm a little spoiled because I've mainly worked in um, Hoover and at the LSE, yes, um, and uh, and the Library of Congress um, mm -hmm. and and whatnot. But um, I do know, and, and it was kind of fun when it was the old Buchanan sure, House because sure. you could find serendipity. You know, if I just yeah, turn around this corner, yeah. I'm going to find the whole yeah. thing and stuff. Yeah. But Jim was very funny because I remember I I came upon some stuff at BPI. When they were, you know, because they didn't have a Ph.D. program when they first showed there. So he was oh, going right. to have the chance yeah. to orchestrate it. Right. Create so you have Getz, yeah. you got Tulloch, yeah. you got him coming. They're trying right. to make this argument. Yeah. And and I was all excited because I was like, because if you go and look at what the list is, the way they're doing it, it's kind of fascinating. Yes. Right? And so I go there and I'm like talking to him. And of course, if you remember in those times, whenever you wanted to talk to Jim, then all of a sudden Joanne would say, let's tape it. <laughs> right? Right, so, right, right. So yeah. you're sitting there. This is the not like, camera. yeah, the little camera. So she starts taping it. So it's somewhere in the archives. I have no idea. But I asked him, I said, this is amazing, like that you're doing this curriculum reform. And he goes, he goes, Peyton, don't. Don't get too excited about it. He goes, I went there to retire. He goes, I was escaping to the mountains, you know, to get away from the nonsense yeah. at UCLA. Yeah. And I was like, but it was real romantic. And, you know, this whole, no, you know, no. That's and funny. So, yeah. Um, the other thing I'll add is that the, the whole memorabilia aspect of it was wonderful for grad students. Yes. So they could just go there and they just drink it in. Yeah, and the so photos was, yeah, and everything. Yeah, yeah it was amazing. Yeah. And and the, 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 the Volker uh, yes. you know, posters yes. and who yeah, they yeah, had in. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So I want to end up by asking you about the history of economic thought and your leadership role in it. Uh, what I mean by that is not only the Adam Smith Society but and then HES, which you play that, but you also ran the Summer Institute uh, for many years, which has become um, uh, kind of a model that now some other people are trying to replicate right. and whatnot. Yeah. And um, where do you see sort of this, these kind of the next generation of entrepreneurs yeah. of leading the field of trying to get history of economic thought? Great. Um, not only a greater amount of people doing it, but also uh, kind of crea creating the right kind of spaces for them to do that. Yeah, in. so that's a great question. I, I do think there's been sort of a renaissance, you know, and I don't know if, if I don't want to say that um, the Summer Institute contributed to it or created it, but maybe it did. Um, uh, but there are, there are now, I think, a good number of kind of almost mid-career yeah. people. Um, so Stefan Kolov, for right. instance, might be an example. You know, still fairly young, but having come through the Summer Institute, connected to the History of Economic Society um, or the International Adam Smith Society, uh, who are now um, – established enough that they they can both do their research um, and and teaching and so on but also you know um, think about how they're gonna you know organize a conference or you know push things uh, going forward so that uh, I'm pretty confident about the future um, and I think this goes to what I said early on um, there are more ways that you can do history of economics now than there were when I was came out of grad school you know where I, I had to go to an economics department, mm -hmm. as did 
you and, and you know, um, and I had to do a regular PhD, which I think you should do a regular, you know, a PhD in economics. I mean, I, I don't think you have to, but I, I think there's a, there's a space for people yeah. who do that. Um, and I think it's important that, um, that people who do the history of economics are well enough trained to also do economics and understand more than, um, well, understand some of the implications of moves in the history of economics um, in terms of economic theory and so on. Um, uh, but there are PPE programs, and that's that's uh, a growing part of the uh, the academy. And those are places where historians of economics are welcome and can do really good work. Um, and so I, you know, I would say there's there's those kinds of programs, but there are a lot of other programs that are also you know interdisciplinary and so on. So so even if there may not be all that many historians of economics or historians of economic thought um, in economics departments, pure and simple, you know, sort of straightforward economics departments. There are many more places that they can locate, that historians can locate um, compared yeah. to, you know, 20 years ago. So so that's, I think that's good. The one thing is, you know, you want to you make sure you don't, you know, so Mark Shabas wrote that article, mm -hmm. Breaking Away, and, and I do think, I, I disagreed with that article um, at the time, and I think I still do, at least in the main. I mean, I, you know, I, I understand the point it's making and so on, but, but I think it's important to not relocate somewhere and make yourself irrelevant then yeah. to the economics profession. So that's, that's the challenge, I think, going forward. Um, you know, not many economists are going to listen to us, but we want to get some of them too. Yeah. Well, I hope that they listen to you a lot because <laughs> I you. think that you have done amazing work uh, both in scholarship and in leadership. We're all the better for it. And I hope that you have very wide readership of uh, the book on the Virginia School and the political economy too. of uh, natural, nat uh, natural equals. Uh, anyway, thank you very much well, for this you. conversation. So yeah, It's been fun. Thanks. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.